0: Right, right, we're in John chapter 3. I'm going to read our passage for us. Uh, we're going to finish up chapter 3, dip our toe into chapter 4, and um, we're going to see, I think, a beautiful picture of uh, John the Baptist living out this, um, this primary example for us of what it looks like to live our lives completely glorifying Jesus, completely set on glorifying Jesus. So we've talked about John the Baptist in uh, previous chapters. Uh, he, he's this integral character as John, the author, John the evangelist, is writing this gospel account. He he weaves John the Baptist's story in very intentionally, and this will actually be the last time we hear from John the Baptist in this gospel. Um, and so when we saw him previously, we saw that, man, he, he's sent as a witness, the forerunner, to come and just make known that the Savior is coming. And that's sprinkled in. And I think he's sent as this forerunner for us to see, hey, actually, this is what we're all supposed to be doing because Jesus has come, but guess what? He's coming again. And so the way that John completely gave his life to making people ready for the coming of Jesus is how we are supposed to follow suit, follow suit, and, and do the same thing. This is why Jesus called John the greatest man ever born of a woman, because he was so. Uh, it's not that he was sinless. We see doubt later. We see we see some things about John, but he was the closest to his original purpose of man just making much of Jesus. And so, let's read this kind of last encounter uh, and last time we'll hear from John the Baptist in the book from John the Evangelist. So starting in Verse 22 of chapter three, and we'll read down to verse three of chapter four. After this, so after his exchange with Nicodemus, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing in Aonon near Salim, and because the water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Now there was a discussion arose between some of John's disciples. And a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the, the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who is, has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands Right, sorry, so I was going to keep going. So I just want you to see this is a reaction to this tension because, I, again, chapter divisions are not, not always, you know, as helpful as, as you might hope. So Jesus had learned, verse 1 of chapter 4, that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself didn't baptize only his disciples. And so what did he do? He left and departed again for Galilee. Okay, so this is the scene. This is what we find ourselves. um, We've seen John is baptizing. We see Jesus go and get baptized by John. And we see John look at the crowd and say, That's the one. That's the Lamb. That's who's going to take away the sins of the world. Jesus gets baptized. Many of John's disciples, at least two, we see leave John to go and and follow Jesus. This is what John has been teaching them about. Hey, there's a Messiah coming. John says, He's here. And they're like, All right, well, I guess we're going with him now. and, and, and yet we see that John still has some disciples, he's still gathering a crowd, he's still doing his ministry, telling people that the Messiah is here. So John's baptizing, now Jesus leaves from this scene with Nicodemus, and, and he is baptizing, although later we see it, it's, it's just it's his disciples are baptizing, but he's the authority, he's the one kind of giving commission to that. And so uh, they leave the, the conversation with Nicodemus, and they just kind of set up shop for a while. It's, it's really interesting Can't spend a ton of time on it, but we see um, in in verse 22 that that Jesus went with his disciples into the countryside, and he remained there with them. Like, that could be translated, he spent time with them. We've seen that the Son of God has come to tabernacle to dwell with man. That's what's broken in our world. Man has separated himself from God. God, his solution to that is not to laugh at us, not to cast us out, but to come into our story, and Jesus is, is spending time with his disciples. There's really some beauty if you think about it. Like, just like, hey, we're just going to hang out here for a while. We're going to spend some time together. And in that, people are still coming and, and they're getting baptized. Jo- John's in a similar place, right? There's a, there's a lot of water here. So John set up shop. He's baptizing people over there. Jesus is baptizing people here. And through that, we get this uh, kind of contentious moment that comes up where a Jew, we, we don't get his name. Um, uh, comes and starts to talk to G- John's disciples and, and, and raises a question. What we see is he raises a question about purification. Now, we don't know what the question was. We don't know the specifics here. We don't know who he was. We don't know exactly what he asked. But it says that he raised a question about purification. Um, and so that, that word there, purification, is the same one we saw in chapter 2, the, the, the wedding feast, or the, the water to wine, the, the jars that were there for purification. It's the same word. It's, it's a Jewish ritual of cleansing. They, they, they believed water represented cleanliness. They would, they would immerse as much of themselves as they could in it. And so for a Jew to walk up and, and see these two baptizing, it would not have been completely unfamiliar, but it would have looked a lot like a purification ritual. It would have looked a lot like people you know, saying, okay, so this is, you're, you're, you're being purified. This is some kind of purification bath. Uh, it, we, can, we can kind of assume maybe that's where it started. This is just me assuming. This is me trying to fill in some blanks that, Uh, We don't have to have for the Bible, but regardless of what it is, he seems to turn, somehow that conversation turns to a comparison between how many are coming to John and how many are coming to Jesus. Okay, so maybe it went something like this. So you guys are doing like a purification thing? So which ones, like whose is better? Like if I'm going to go get a bath, who should I go to? Whose whose purification is going to last? Because more people seem to be going to, oh, boy, over there than y'all. So is his work, does his work better? Is, are you the discount baptism? I, again, I'm, I'm speculating here. Well, Whatever it is, it, it leads to John's disciples now coming to him with this question, or, or, or this, this statement, rather. Okay, Verse 20, 26, they came to John and they say, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness... Look, he's baptizing, kind of like, thought this was your thing, and all are going to him. Now, are all going to him? No, because there's some still there to be baptized by John, right? So we, we, we already start to see how this, this idea of comparison, uh, like, steals life from us because we're seeing some exaggerated language there. All are going to him, right? He's drawing the bigger crowds, Right? And so, th- this, is, this is what is brought to John. And I want you to hear how John answers, and then we'll look at our first point. John answers, verse 27. He says, A person can't receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. You are my witnesses. You've heard me say, I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Okay? The first thing that I want you to see from this story is that when we set our, ourselves, when we have given ourselves over, to our purpose being to make much of Jesus. When, when we have realized, not only is it, like, that's not just a purpose that one or two people choose, or, you know what, if you're called into ministry, if you're called to be a missionary, you're called to be a pastor, you're called whatever, yeah, of course, you, you spend your time literally working for, making much of Jesus. No, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about a vocational, you know, calling in that sense. I'm talking about humanity's purpose is to be image bearers, to be reflections of the glory of God, to, to make much of him. Like that's when God put us on earth, Adam and Eve, we were there to bear his image, to make his image known to the world, right? What, what got broken was whenever we, we, we took that glory from God, right? Our story was, was all about him and our purpose was all about making much of him. When we took that glory for ourselves and began to make much of us, that's what distorts Everything about life, and that's what b- begins to, l- to fuel things like comparison. And comparison will kill you. Comparison kills. It sucks the life out of you, slowly. It, it, it literally has taken many lives. People have been so... Uh, downtrodden by, you know, things people have said or, or images they couldn't live up to or whatever, we're going to see that it actually is going to lead to fueling the, the Pharisees, right? In some way, that's the root behind what fuels the Pharisees to kill Jesus, right? Comparison kills, right? We see that, that underneath so many of these other sins that, that we, we see God tell us, hey, don't do this, coveting, stealing, lying, they all start here. They all have their root of, of comparing, right? Uh, when we glorify God, when when our our focus is shifted there, this is why the Bible says the fear of man, or the fear of God is the beginning of what? All wisdom. Why? Because it'll keep you from this fear of man that is the beginning of all death, right? It it pulls the life right from us. And so, um, what we see John say is, listen, hey, yeah, I get it, guys. Like, I've noticed that. And you know what? If that's how it is, And that's how God wants it to be because none of these people have come because of my goodness and my glory. They're only here at my baptism pool because God has brought them here. And if there's more at Jesus's, then that's what God wants. And, And he says, listen, like I've been telling you the whole time, that's the big idea. I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before. And what's John saying? He goes, hey, guys, it's not about me. I've been telling you it's not about me. But it's actually not about me. So one of the reasons I love this story is because it's going to get really like practical rubber meets the road from us saying things about our life being about Jesus to really pushing in on, okay, but how is life actually about Jesus for you? Has it actually transformed how you see what you're going through, how you see what you're called to do? Because we could say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I want Jesus to be made famous. Yeah, my identity is in Jesus. Sometimes in church, we use words that that aren't real clear to other people, and frankly, we don't know a lot about what they mean either. We just kind of have this surface level knowledge of it. We say we should have an identity in Christ, an identity in Jesus, and and that's right, we should, but what does that mean? What does that mean? How does that actually flesh out? Well, John's. we're going to see that because life is going to push right up on John today, and we're going to see from him how he responds when they're squeezed there, Jesus comes out of him because he's actually made his life about Jesus. And so the first thing I want us to see is that when we have given ourselves over to, to, to glorifying Jesus, that leads us or gives us comparison-proof identity. When we are, are completely consumed with giving our lives to Jesus, then that gives us comparison Proof, identity. You see, I, I want you to feel that in this moment. I want you to feel what John was, was feeling. I want you to feel what John's disciples were feeling. No doubt they were there partly because they were, they were feeling like they were a part of something. Right? They're there following John because they're a part of something bigger. They're excited about this movement. And now all of a sudden, there's another movement. There's another teacher. There's another rabbi. And he's getting more people are attending his church. More people are showing up to his baptistry, right? And, and so the, John, the, the disciples of John are feeling what so many of us feel when we come down to life going, whoa, 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 I thought you were this person. I thought you were the person who got the attention for that. And now somebody else has showed up and, and they're stealing that. And so there's an actual tension here. And for John, this could have gone several ways. We see that fame and, and influence... Is something that is sought after, like all over our world, right? People are uh, like, I don't don't know. I guess it's a job to be an influencer. Um, You make YouTube videos, and they're obnoxious usually. I think that I think that's part of the requirement. Uh, You got to be obnoxious, and people will click, and they'll subscribe. You got to ask them to subscribe, like repeatedly though. Smash that like button, subscribe, right? So we have this this like thing going on in our culture. Where everybody's pursuing approval, they're pursuing stuff by, by what? Becoming an influencer, right? We have people that they, they, they look to get their identity, their approval, by becoming someone that other people look to, by getting likes, by getting followers. We have actual measurements now of how popular, how cool you are. Do you know that? How, how many friends you got? How many, like how many followers you got on Insta? <laughs> can't say Graham. It's too much work. How many followers you got on Twitter? How many, like, like, there's actual stats we can check for whether or not we are cool. It's, listen, and we can laugh about it, but back to it killing people, this mess is actually driving our youth of today, our young people, the next generation, into serious mental illness crisis. It is an actual epidemic. It's not good. But behind that, you see this desire for influence, for popularity. Well, here's the deal. John kind of had some influence and popularity, didn't he? We looked at that a few weeks ago. Didn't care how he dressed, but people liked him, right? He he was wild looking, like probably matted dreadlocks, right? Weird clothes, weird diet. People are going to go to this desert, and and they're going to follow this guy because he's preaching with power. There's a movement there. And so... So we see, like, that destroys so many people. Frankly, that destroys a lot of pastors. It's a, like, it's a dangerous deal when people start looking to you for guidance, for influence. Pray for your pastors. Pray for pastors in general. It, it, It can, like, lead us down a path of, pursuing approval, pursuing filling seats, pursuing church growth, rather than pursuing the image of, of Jesus. My, my friend Brody, you've heard me say this before, but it's so important. Um, a couple things. There's a, there's a famous Scottish pastor named uh, Robert Murray McShane that said, what my people need most from me is my personal holiness. I think he had, had that in a study, and it's just like, what, what my church needs most from me is that I be personally really close to Jesus and I'm pursuing my own holiness. But more than being a great preacher, more than being present at all their needs, more than being you know, present online or whatever, what they need most from me is my personal holiness. And my buddy Rhody tells the story of his dad who was a pastor and ended up making a mess of his life. Uh, you know, his ministry got destroyed through uh, adultery and alcoholism and, and they were estranged for several years. And um, it really... He didn't even get to see his grandkids, but they were, they were having this moment of reconciliation and about to, like, restore the relationship, and Brody said, hey, dad, like, just, just, a, just a gnarly moment of emotion, and he said, I need you to tell me how I don't become like you, because Brody's also in ministry. How do I not end up where you are? And his dad is older, I think, re- repenting at this moment, like, trying to restore, like, get back with Jesus, and... And he says to him, when my call to ministry eclipsed my call to be conformed to the image of Christ, things went off the rails. What is he saying? Whenever it became more about doing this work, being a pastor, being popular, whatever, than it did about being conformed to the image of Christ, he no longer had firm ground to stand on. And that is what allowed sin to grow, fester, and eventually ruin his life. You say, well, Jordan, I'm not a pastor, I'm not a preacher, I'm not a a missionary. Here's the deal. This is not special instructions for the special forces teams of ministry. When John the Baptist says he must increase and I must decrease, that's not just a beautiful thing that John said. John is actually laying before us the path to life. So when we have, have given ourselves over to, to making much of Jesus, we are now comparison-proof. Because if that's where we actually get our joy, then we're not going to get swept up in these other conversations. Look at, let's look at what John says as he goes on to say. Uh, verse 28, he says, in, uh, we already read 28, but he says, you, get, you, you know, I've been saying, I'm not the Christ. It's not about me. It's about him. Uh, verse 29, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. So who's it about? John says, it's not about me, it's about him. How do we know? Well, it's the one who has the bride. Like the wedding is not about the best man, is what he's about to say. He's, like, who's it about? The one who has the bride is the one whose day it is about, right? So he says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Um, so John's going to use this, I think, for multiple reasons, but, but um, the people of Israel wouldn't have been unfamiliar with God referring to them as his bride and their relationship with God as, as a covenantal, uh, God is the, is the groom pursuing his bride. Jesus will, will use this language. And so this is not unfamiliar for them. Paul is going to use it later in Ephesians. And, and so uh, John says, listen, like life, it's not about me. It's about Jesus. How do I know? Because He's the one who has a purpose. He's the one wh- whom it's going to be about at the end. When we get to the end of the ceremony, it's going to be about Jesus. Now, for them, uh, in in this context, the the bridegroom, the best man, the the friend of the of the groom, would often be responsible for much of the ceremony, even getting the bride there, sometimes. And so, when he says, "Like, listen, the, the, the best man, like." He's there for the, 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 the goodness, the glory of the groom, and when he sees that the groom is there, he rejoices. Why? Because in some ways, his job is over. The, the, he's here to hand the responsibility off. He's here to rejoice now that this union is going to take place. And so he's using this, this language and saying, listen, um, basically what John is saying is how obnoxious would it be for the best man to make that day about him? And you can just go ahead and play that out be real obnoxious, wouldn't it? Some of you have been there. The speech goes on for like 45 minutes, you're like, dude, not about you and I'm hungry, right? (laughs) Zip it, right? Um, Some of y'all think that here, it's fine, we'll get you to lunch, I promise, I promise. (laughs) Walked right into that one, didn't I? Set myself up for it. But it would, be, it would be obnoxious if, the, if the, the best man was like, oh, yeah, well, I mean, I introduced him. Oh, yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I did all this. Are you guys like Like, it would be like, dude, shut up. And what John is saying is, that's what life is like. And when you make it about you, it's equally obnoxious. John is saying, think of from heaven's perspective, watching down over us. Heaven, where the course is on repeat, at Jesus' throne, holy, 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 holy is the Lord God Almighty. Say it again. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The, 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 the atmosphere in heaven is all about Jesus. Some of y'all didn't like the bass this morning. The, the angels' voices are rattling the, the, the temple. And people aren't worried about whether it's their song or whatever. They're, they're just like, oh, yeah, Jesus. And they, they just worship, right? They just worship. It's not, well, I, I don't know. It's not really my song. Maybe the next one I'll like it better. No, it's just a response to his glory. That's who Jesus is. So imagine the, the, the heavens. We talk about this. David Platt uh, talks about, like, when we're, when we're praying or when nobody wants to pray or whatever. And he's like, heaven is all up there. Like, do you know who you're talking to? Like, why is, why is not everybody running to let me pray, let me pray? Like, because this is the, the privilege of a lifetime to talk to the Savior of the world, who it is all about. Remember, John spent many, many verses in, in chapter 1 making sure we knew that this Jesus is the center of the universe. He is the logos. He is the thing that holds it all together. So imagine, from heaven, seeing humans like us making life about us, being selfish, throwing fits, reaching for glory that doesn't belong to us. This is what John the Baptist is saying. It would be foolish for the best man to make that day about him. It would also be foolish for me to make life about me. The friend of the groom knows this day is about his friend, so he acts accordingly. Every day is about Jesus, so we should act accordingly. The second thing we're going to see is that when we are giving our lives to to making much of Jesus, to glorifying Jesus, it will give us an ever-increasing joy. Ever-increasing joy comes. This is not just God sitting up there saying, I need my glory and you guys need to give it to me. God has his glory, okay? He doesn't need anything from us. He is not served by our measly human hands. Bible make that point. What kind of God would he be if he was if so vain, so impotent, so unable that he needed us to coddle him and sing? No, no. The reason we're commanded to, to praise and worship and give our lives to him is because that is the truth. That is the only, that is our design. That is not some equation. That's just like our makeup. And it's loving for him to say that. And so when we realize, oh, it's not about us, that's actually the best news. That's actually good news for us being uh, freed from trying to milk something out of this life that isn't there for us to receive. And so let's look at, at verse 29. He says, uh, the, well, the same thing with the, with the bridegroom, and then I want to I go a little bit further um, and, and see where John says, therefore, right, so when the, when the bridegroom is here, If I'm the friend of the bride, or the friend of the groom, when he shows up, the groom is here, I rejoice greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. And this is where he says the famous verse of he must increase and I must decrease. So when you realize that life isn't about you, that's actually the first step into getting joy out of life. I want you to think to the f- famous passage from Luke chapter nine. It's in another spot in the gospels as well. But Jesus says this famous thing that whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. I want you to lay those parallel over there. John says, I, I've got to decrease and Jesus has to increase. And that's, that's coming on this conversation of his joy being complete. This isn't this begrudging, yeah, I know, it's not my turn now. My glory's over. Yeah, I know. I need to, I need to do more for Jesus. G- I need to give more to the church. I need to, I need to, I know. I should know these worship songs. I should have read more of my Bible. I know. I know I'm not a good Christian. No, he's saying, my, my joy is, is built on this. This is, this is John's joy source overflowing here. He's saying, now that Jesus is here, this is all that I've been living for. This is all that I've given myself to. And now that his voice is here, man, John is saying, I, no, no, I'm not jealous. His disciples are here going, John, Jesus is baptizing more people than you. And John's going, yeah. It's awesome. It's awesome. This is what it's about, guys. Like, it's about him, not me. If I had, if only I had come, John's like, then everybody would be disappointed. I'm not the Christ. I was sent before him. He is very clear in his role in this world is to make much of Jesus. Okay? When Jesus comes along and says, Hey, you want to find your life? You need to lay it down. Give it up. What's he saying? He's saying the problem with your life, the reason you're frustrated, disappointed, disillusioned, want to quit, depressed, fill in the blank, is that you've made it about you. You've made it about you. You think you're the point. So now you're mad that God isn't answering your prayers the way that you'd like them to be answered. Now you think that God has abandoned you because life isn't going the way that you think it should go. Jesus says, to find true joy, you got to lay all that down. Literally lose your life, and there you'll find it. There you'll find it. You'll find your purpose. You'll find your hope. When you get your joy from seeing Jesus made famous, this is what makes sense of the famous passage of, like, he will work all things together for the good of those who love God. Like, that's a hard truth. Like, that's a, that's a good truth. We say it in, in, in hard times, but it's, it's hard to accept. It's hard to realize. It's hard to sit with. But this is what makes sense of that. Whenever we realize, when we're, we're all about Jesus' glory and not our own glory, then we could start to see how even our suffering. Even our struggles have a purpose, and they can make much of Jesus. That's one that I've, I've talked to more than a couple people about recently is a hard marriage. I've had people sit in my office and say, I don't know what else to do. Surely God doesn't want me to be unhappy. and they've already made up their mind to get a divorce. Now, I'm not talking about situations of abuse. I'm not talking about uh, situations like that. No, I'm talking about people who are are just really unhappy, and sometimes they have really good reason to, to be unhappy. Now, if life's about you, of course, God would want you out of that unhappy situation, wouldn't he? But life's not about you. And if it's not about you and it's about Jesus, that frees you up to trust in something beyond yourself and to pursue joy that transcends happiness and maybe staying in that marriage that is really hard and even suffering through just unhappiness for maybe the rest of your life. Maybe that brings the most glory to Jesus in some way. Maybe your joy in the midst of an unhappy marriage is actually what's going to bring glory to Jesus. Maybe that and so that begins to connect the dots. Maybe it is how you suffer through a cancer diagnosis that 's going to bring glory to Jesus maybe it 's how you suffer as cancer takes your life from you that 's going to bring joy to Jesus maybe it 's how you suffer as your kids rebel against you that 's going to bring joy to Jesus or glory to Jesus. It, it begins to be the, the the very foundation with which we stand through life 's troubles and tribulations whenever we realize oh it 's not about us it 's about Jesus, and Jesus, I don't know what you're doing, but I trust that you have a plan. I trust that your glory is worth it, and my life is here to serve your glory. That frees us up to get our glory out of something transcendent and eternal, and that kind of joy is increasing in nature and indestructible. I love it. We, a few years ago, we did one of John Piper's Advent devotionals called The Dawning of Indestructible Joy. And that's one of the strongest titles of a book I've ever heard. Like, I love that truth, that when Jesus, that, that Christmas, that, that Jesus showing up, the star from heaven, like this is saying, joy is here and is joy that nobody can take from you. Because when you've placed your hope and trust in Jesus and Jesus alone, that circumstances, comparison, people succeeding around you, people, like, it can't shake you, it can't rattle you because it's about him. We see not only does John respond rightly, what does Jesus do to this conflict? he like, yep, it's time, John. Send him over to me. My turn. Thanks for the spotlight. You're good, John. I'm retiring you. No, Jesus just leaves. Jesus is not interested in this nonsense. He the Bible will say over and over again, he doesn't need glory from us. He doesn't need, like he's not interested in, in building a crowd and, and, and influence in that way. He has his eyes set on something bigger, and he also is a picture of what it looks like to live a life honoring to God the Father and not seeking glory for himself. And so he just leaves. That's what we see in, in chapter four, one through three. Jesus hears that all this is happening, he's like, all right, we're out. We're just gonna go, right? So the third thing I want you to see, the third and final thing is that when our lives are given to bring in glory to Jesus, it gives us eternal purpose. So it gives us comparison-proof identity. It gives us ever-increasing joy that will be fulfilled in heaven fully and totally. The picture there is, is John is saying, I've given my whole life, to telling people that Jesus is coming and that he'll be worth the wait and that he's the savior, and that he's the one. Now he's here and my joy is complete. John is, is a prototype for us because as I said earlier, guess what? Jesus is coming. And we're called to be a people who give our whole life to letting people know, to making ready this earth, this world that we live in, that we've been given dominion over, that we have space to, to execute our life in. Our whole purpose is to let people know that Jesus is coming, that he's worth it, that he is where hope is found, that he is where forgiveness is found. And if we do that, then on that day, we will have no regrets We won't wish we would have done more of anything here on earth. We won't wish we'd have taken more vacations and seen more of the beautiful world. We won't wish we would have made more money. We won't wish we would have worked out more. No, we will go, this is what I've given my whole life for. And Jesus is here. And it is worth it. Nobody can take that from you. No circumstances can rob you of that. And that leads us in to our final point, that it gives us eternal Purpose. So, verse thirty-one, John goes on to say, uh, "He who comes from above is above all." Okay, so he's continuing to make this point. It's not about me; it's about Jesus. I have to decrease. Jesus must increase. That's our that's that's what life should be laid over all of our life for us. Is this making much of Jesus? Is making much of me? That will lead to indestructible joy that can't be robbed from us. He goes on to say, "Listen, here's the deal. Here's why this matters. Here's why it's foolish." For you to try to make life about you. Because it doesn't matter how much you believe it, how much of a stink you make, whatever, it's not about you. He's gonna go on and say, He comes from heaven and He's above all, period. He is all, He made all, He rules over all, He is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth. He's saying, John's like, "I'm, I'm a mere man, right? I'm speaking things in an earthly way, but He who comes from heaven is above all. It would be foolish for John to. Uh, try to usurp Jesus' glory, just like it's foolish for you and I to try to do that with our own life. Verse 32. He bears witness from heaven. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what He has seen and heard, and yet no one receives His testimony. Again, a bit of exaggerated language there. It's not that no one has, but many haven't. Generally speaking, John 1 talks about God came, like Jesus has come to his own, but his, his own has, have not received him right? He's saying, this is literally the one who's made all, he's above all, but no one is listening to what he's saying. That people aren't. If people understood who he was, everybody would be over there. Everybody would be running to him. If people were receiving his testimony, then it would change everybody's life. But whoever does receive his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. So what, he, what he's saying is it's about Jesus, whether you like it to be about Jesus or not. It's not going to matter like how you feel. It's about Jesus. And it will end and it will be like Jesus. So when people give their life to making much of Jesus, they just prove God to be true. They're not the crazy ones. They're the ones that have found the source of joy and they prove life, they prove God to be true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Now this is... Uh, If you're familiar with Hebrews 1, it it talks about how uh, for for many years and many times in many ways, God has spoken through his prophets, and so God has sent Moses. He sent Abraham. He sent David. He sent um, Elijah. He sent Elisha, uh, Jonah, all of these different prophets. He, He said, like the writer of Hebrews is saying, God has been communicating with us throughout all of time. But what John is saying here is each of them just got a measure of the Spirit to do their purpose. God gave them an anointing of the Spirit to accomplish their purpose in their time. Jesus is now shown up, and there was no measuring of his dose of Spirit. He embodies the fullness of who God is. He is the pinnacle of what life is about. The Father loves the Son, verse 35, and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now, again... Keep in mind, when, when the Bible's talking about life, eternal life, death, it is not merely talking about how many years we have on this earth breathing oxygen into our lungs, and when does our pulse stop, and where do we go? The idea of eternal life, the idea of death, transcends our physical breathing, our, our physical And so he's saying, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. What is eternal life? John 17, 3 says to know God, to trust him, to have the source of life, like that's what eternal life is, is to know God, to trust Him, to have our faith in Him. You believe in Jesus, you are hooked back up to the life, the life source. The very thing that was causing the aching, the longing in you to exist, that hole within inside of you that nothing could quench, that thirst, that is satisfied whenever we come. To Jesus. But whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. They won't even understand it. They won't get a glimpse of it because the wrath of God remains on them. That's not saying, well, those people who are really bad, God's going to get them. He's saying, no, we're all really bad. The wrath of God was on us all, but we only get out of the wrath by believing in Jesus. You believe in Jesus, you can have eternal life. You don't believe in Jesus, you're going to continue searching, you're going to continue longing, you're going to continue aching, you're going to continue to compare, you're going to continue to try to get glory horizontally by being better than other sinners. You're going to continue to try to milk this life for something that it cannot give you. Because you believe that that will make you happy instead of surrendering to Jesus. And then that will terminate, that will end and culminate with you forever being separated from God in hell. But the good news, God didn't send Jesus in the world to condemn the world because we were already condemned. So he sent us, he sent him into a condemned world to save it, that whoever would believe in him could be saved. So that's the good news. We can be saved from this life of futility trying to get glory out of other people and out of our you know, posture out of our reputation, out of our whatever, our money, our, our popularity, our image, What like we're rescued from that whenever we turn to Jesus. Those who aren't trusting in Jesus or trusting in something else, they're gonna continue a life of futility, continue a life of frustration, continue a life of emptiness. John lays the Old Testament before these people of Israel as they talk about who Jesus is. Jesus is the greater Moses, rescuing us out of our sin, leading us into the promised land. After that punishment, after that culmination of all the years in the desert, the 40 years, uh, you know, punishment consequences for their unbelief that we looked at last week. They're standing at the promised land once again. And Joshua gives this speech. He's taken over from Moses I get it, there's fear, I get it, life's hard, I understand, he goes, but you got to choose who you're going to serve, choose this day who you're going to serve, as for me and my house, we're going with Jesus, we're going with the Lord, you're here, you're pursuing life on your own terms, you think that Jesus just exists to maybe get you over the edge to be your genie, in a bo- you know, you just kind of you know, ask him for some stuff, but life's still about you, Nothing but death waiting for you. There's nothing but frustration, comparison, letdowns, emptiness. With Jesus, is fullness of life. Who will you serve? Who will you put your trust in? Who will you make your life about? Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you're not only glorious, so holy and righteous that you would just melt our faces off if you were here and present. But you're also kind and loving and gentle and patient. And we as your people cling to that as hope because we are frustrating, small-minded, short-sighted, selfish people. I pray that Your word would stir us to let go of the things of this earth and the things of our world our agenda our whatever and cling tightly to your glory give all that we have to your glory for some that will mean walking away from their careers from their homes to go to the mission field why would we say that's so radical if you are who you say You are. If you are who the Bible says that you are, if you are worthy of these songs, if you are the Jesus that we're singing to, then my goodness, what is my life but an offering to you? you have me to go, then I'll go. May you give us such an overwhelming picture of your glory that it puts our lives into perspective and that we make it about you, that we experience joy because we let go of our own glory, and we cling to, pursue, gather, exalt your glory. I pray that this truth would set addicts free. I pray that this truth would, would uh, begin to peel back the curtains of depression in this place, that it would begin to peel back the, the pain and the destruction and the, the wounds that have been laid on so many of your people, that it would be your goodness and your glory that would shine through, shine into the darkness of our hearts regardless of what the particular flavor of darkness is that it would be your glory that would begin to shine light that would bring healing as we let go and we worship you so come Holy Spirit do that sort of work this morning stir in us make us your people aware of your glory